Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning for the second time, episode 38 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So a few months ago, I recorded a podcast and did the whole episode and realized I never hit record. When I clicked on meeting, you know, there was no prompt to save it and all that sort of stuff. And so the other day I recorded a meeting and I clicked end and ran off because somebody was at the door. And when I came back later to do all the saving, I couldn't find the meeting and I realized I didn't record the meeting. So I cried and cried and cried because as you all know from listening to the last 37 episodes, time, structuring my time can be difficult. I'm at the whim of a lot of other people. And there are two sides to this. One is I don't have much I can do about that. This is my life. And the other side is, look, Barbara, if you want more control over your schedule, control your schedule. At any rate, I was heartbroken, just just trying to cram all these things in before I head off to visit Gracie. Kenny and I had a pretty big fight the other night. And we've had three or four big ones since Jack has been born. And we typically just put them away and move on and don't really talk them through. And this one was different. We didn't do a ton of talking through, but it was the first time we really just acknowledged, look, we have to really be clear on where each of us thinks we are going as human beings. Aside from Jack, you know, and you know, we brought this human being into the world. And so we have to provide him with a good life, which leads me to <laughs> the secret hidden blessing in me not recording the podcast, because in between recording the unrecorded podcast and now I had a very busy Saturday and it involved two things. One was timing a race and the other was going to a play by the Concord High School Theater Company, the cast, C-A-S-T. It's the drama club at Concord High. It was a big day for me because both of those things tie into Molly memories. And I know many, many people who don't really understand the measure of loss and grief that goes with losing a child, or I think with losing a mother or a father at a young age, you know, when you're not supposed to lose the parent of the child, Molly's death was yesterday to me in so many ways. When I am triggered by an event or I go to something that has a lot of Molly in it, it can be really hard for me. So I was timing a ton of road races at the time of Molly's death. It was one of my major sources of income. I was teaching at VLAX and timing world races. And then I had started at Parker Education, which, you know, is a wonderful educational facility, but was not the right move for me at all at that time, hindsight being 2020. I only time races now when they're really shorthanded and I don't want to lose my touch. I really love the running and the racing community. There are people I know and see and, and all this. So I went to the Springfield Dam Run, which is in Springfield, Vermont, which is this wonderful, such a wonderful community of people. And I've timed it. It was one of my races to time because it's a manually timed event, meaning they don't use the mats and the chips and all that. You know, it's somebody pushing buttons every time someone crosses the line and typing in bib numbers into the computer. Really the first of computerized race timing back in the day. You know, I was asked by Bill Teshik, the owner of Granite State Race Services, would I time a race? And I said, sure. So it was this particular race and, and it was May 14th. Well, May 14th had a lot of Mother's Day connotations because one year I had timed a road race in honor of a, little girl that died. And I remember thinking, oh my God, how horrible this little girl died. And Molly and Gracie gave me this amazing Mother's Day. And there was that connotation to it because the first part of May can be tricky for me. The second piece was the last time I timed that race, Molly was alive. I haven't been there since 2015. 
So it was really, really difficult to see this group of people who remembered me, the race director, the new race director, some of the volunteers, this uh, race volunteer named Bettina. We always laugh because our names are so consistent with our age. We have old lady names. Just the drive, the buildings that I saw and, and all the things leading up to getting to the race, then the race itself and running into people and then driving home and all the things. And when I was driving home from that race, I was always on the phone with Gracie or Molly or Kenny or somebody. I'm on my way home. And it just brought back some heart wrench for me. And, and it was also with my sister, Johanna. She and I timed so many races together in those days because we did the manually timed races. I did that all morning and it involved getting up at five and leaving at six. And, you know, <laughs> Jack never went back to sleep. So Kenny got up at five and had the baby all day. He had some help, but still. So at any rate, I came home a bit emotionally fried. It was 90, over 90 degrees, which is one of my favorite ways to feel. Then it's spring musical production week. So, you know, the days line up 2016 to now. So Gracie's freshman year at Concord High was absolutely flawless until the day it wasn't, which was May 1st. So she made the musical as a freshman and she was so utterly excited to be in. It was Anything Goes. And it was this very weekend, May 12th, 13th and 14th, 2016. And of course, once Molly died, she just withdrew from it completely. And Clint Close being who he is, she was an ensemble member and her pieces were easily swallowed in by others. I remember when I did Mary Poppins a couple summers ago with RB in the summer, it was an, a main stage production and two or three adults ended up dropping out and we had, we just switched it up and we didn't have new people come in. We just gave people more than one role. And so that's what we did. The three of us went to the play, Gracie, Kenny and I, and I don't quite know how we did it. I think it's because in those early days, you're numb and being out in public, the people swarm to you and provide you with love and support in a way that that doesn't happen now. At any rate, it was the musical and Molly B supports the musical. So this particular musical was a play called Once. And look on the back, hashtag Heart Molly B. We provide t-shirts for theater kids. We provide the t-shirts because one year Molly did RB and they just didn't have enough money in the budget for t-shirts. And RB didn't make the kids buy them. They were just trying to keep camp costs down. And typically they had somebody sponsor the t-shirts and that year nobody did. That was the second year and the, the last year that Molly did RB and there were no t-shirts. She was heartbroken. We still have her orange Fiddler t-shirt. That Fiddler t-shirt is one of Gracie's prized possessions because it was, it was just this wonderful sort of second step in the theater world for Gracie and, the, and an eye-opening experience for Molly around the life of theater. So here's the musical. I was going to go at the two o'clock performance. Then I was afraid I wouldn't get back in time. So I said, no, I'll go at night at seven. But by seven o'clock at night, the last thing I'm going to do is go out and be around people. I can't do it anymore. I just can't. I actually haven't been able to do it for a long time. By evening, I just need to be home or at a CrossFit gym somewhere. Those are the two things I can do in the evenings. Or if I'm with people that I care for and care for me, then I'm okay as well. Back and forth, back and forth. I went to the two o'clock show. Now it was 95 degrees and sunny. You'd think I would want to be outside. But summer's coming and I'm heading off to Florida. So I have plenty of 90 degree days ahead of me in the near future. So I wasn't overly worried about the weather. And, and actually, I can't enjoy it with Jack when it's 90 degrees outside because it's too hot for him. We end up being inside anyway. I went to the musical. So if you wonder why I keep looking sideways, theater and Concord Dance Academy and CDA and dance are the two connections, big connections to what our life was like in the days and months and weeks leading up to Molly's death. And it was this reality that just blew up. Dance continued because Gracie still had three years of high school. Theater didn't. It was too, it was too painful for Gracie. And the last play that she was a part of didn't have Molly in it anyway. And so Gracie stopped. We had an agreement that summer of 2016 that she would do Elf. She would do one of the two plays I had signed her up for, and she did Elf, and I did Track Camp. And then she helped out at James and the Giant Peach. Those were the two plays that Molly and Gracie were going to do that summer. I'm going to give a shout out to Maya Bozzi, who came out and said hi the other day. 
played with little Jack Jack. Maya was the spider in James and the Giant Peach. She had some role where she was a spider and Molly had a dance costume of a spider and we gave her this web, this spider web to wear in that play. So that was a connection. Molly also made the golden goose feather costume for Maya with Keisha back in sixth grade. So those were some nice connections, theater connections. So here I have Susical Jr. And this was the play this year at Runlet Middle School. Now these dates don't line up. When Molly did the Bring Musical at Runlet, it was the week prior. This was a little bit later in the year. But here on the front opening of this, if you're not watching, I'm holding up the show book. Thank you to our show sponsor, Barb Higgins and the Molly B Foundation. So there is no ego involved here. When I hold up these two playbooks here, show, show books, and look at the covers, the significance of the plays themselves and what they represent is not lost on me in regard to Molly and Kenny and Gracie and Jack-Jack's arrival and Roy and my job at Parker Academy and all the things that go into and are surrounded by the loss of Molly. Jack wouldn't be here. And one of the stories I told at the road race to the people that hadn't seen me, they didn't know that Molly died. They live in Vermont. They don't know about Jack. Might not make that connection, even if they saw it on the news. And so I told the story again and again about Molly's death and Jack's arrival two or three times, but it felt like again and again. I came home pretty, pretty wiped out. I go to this play and I sit down in the audience and I watch. I see Clint Close, who is the director, who was the director of, managing director of RB Productions, who was the director of several plays that Gracie and Molly were in together and who Gracie worked with last summer choreographing. She worked with Bryn Cohen as well, choreographing for RB. So I go there and I said, oh, I can't wait. I'm glad I came. I wasn't going to, here I am because, you know, Molly, the Molly B Foundation supports theater. And we also, the Molly B Foundation also helped finance our fund soundboard, this amazing soundboard that they use Clint shares with every theater entity in the city. And so he was happy to show that to me as well. So I said, okay, I'm going to go sit down. And he said, did you bring your tissues? And I'm like, why? And he goes, you're going to need tissues. So I went to the bathroom and got a big roll, a big thing of toilet paper and sat down. The reason I take a pause here is typical spring musicals. Typical musicals are big, giant, you know, Broadway type musicals, showy musicals. You know, Brigadoon, Oliver, even though Oliver talks about unhappiness, it's all these, you know, foot stomping things that you sing along with. You know, Les Mis. <laughs> Even though it's a horrifying story and a lot of the songs are sad, that's probably one step closer to a lot of the musicals that Clint picks. I'm saying this a little bit because having just finished reading The Body Keeps the Score and how profound it was, I'm going to hold it up again, The Body Keeps the Score, how profound it was that a book this big written by a hardcore psychiatrist around trauma and five things to help, and one is theater. That was a mind, a mind blower for me because in all of my ways to want to memorize, memorialize and remember Molly, it comes back to theater and dance and performing and getting up on a stage and for a little while being everything you think you are or that you want to be. And so here's Susical. Here's, it's the middle school play. In those plays, they did Charlie Brown. They do Bugsy Malone. They've done, you know, Molly was in Bye Bye Birdie. Gracie was in Thoroughly Modern Millie. And they're these wonderful, wonderful shows that are easily adaptable to middle school age children, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds that are coming into their own as human beings that feel ugly in their skin, that smell bad most of the time, walk into a middle school and it's a reality of life that is sometimes horrifying, but easily expressed theater. And looking at theater productions for middle school and for the Children's Theater Project, which is Karen Braz directs both of these, 
those plays as well are fun. If the plays are meaningful, they're meaningful through humor and through fairy tale and through imagination. Then you get to Concord High School and, you know, anything goes Gracie's freshman year. That's sort of a traditional musical. But Les Mis, they did The Addams Family. In some of their non-musical pieces, 26 Pebbles, I think it was called. I haven't had the guts to watch that yet. Nora's Lost. Those aren't musical. Those were plays that were done at competitions. They are serious, intense, heart-wrenching journeys into the human condition. And into I'm going to cry a little bit into what makes us tender and fragile. I remember going to Nora's Lost. It's about a woman that walks out of a retirement home, like a nursing home, and she's got severe dementia. And she doesn't know anything. And Maya Fabosi actually played this role. And the entire play, she stood on stage. She said nothing, but her posture would respond to what the memory was. And all of her memories are her life story. And they were acted out by all the other people. So it was her children as little children and losing a son at Vietnam. And like, oh my gosh, all the things that Nora went to were acted out. So I remember going to that play, having no idea what I was in for. And I remember Josh Gerard's mother, Amy, and Keisha's mother, Elaine, saw that I was there and they were like, they came and sat near me and they're like, are you okay? Are you sure? You know, <laughs> and I love it because they're taking care of me because they know Molly's loss is devastating. So I look at Clint, who I, who I know fairly well. We talk and we've gotten to know one, one another a lot since Molly's death because the Molly B Foundation is so tied into RB Productions. But I look at what I know of him and I look at the level of theater he chooses. And I know, having read this book, what theater does, not only for the people on stage, but those that facilitate it and allow it to happen and cultivate it and get people together to make it happen. And I just have to say thank you, Clint Close, for having the guts to choose these incredibly difficult stories and saying to a group of high school students, I believe that you can do this. So this particular play, Once, takes place in a pub in Dublin. And it's your typical cast of characters that you might find in an Irish pub. And at first I thought it took place a long time ago, but there were cell phones and modern day artists represented. And, and so I realized that the costuming and the idea, I believe, allow us to look at things devoid of time. Okay, yeah, we're looking at a, an old Hoover vacuum, but we have cell phones. And so the cast of characters ranged in a wide variety of ways. There was the one I identified most with was the one that was singing and dancing and drinking and dating and being all seductive because that's just how I spent a lot of my life. And when I look at what I went through as a child and my, how I dealt with trauma, it all makes sense. Of course, I would relate to her. And I did. And I hurt for what her character might be. She had minimal lines. She wasn't a main character. But her point, her purpose in the story was significant. The two leads were a man and a woman who were both suffering in relationship loss or struggle. The male lead, his girlfriend had flown from Ireland to America. And the female lead, her husband had left her and gone back to Czechoslovakia. So now you have three different countries involved now, Ireland, Czechoslovakia, United States. Then you have this male character who was artfully played by a girl who is trying so hard not to just be a busboy and a hamburger server and a drink maker. He wants to be a manager and, and make it big in life. And his whole piece of this is that. And then you have characters that don't ever speak, but while other things are going on or in between scenes, they're dancing to a song that's written by the main character. And, and you're watching them perform to a song that has profound meaning. So then there was a banker. And, and actually, this was my favorite male character, I think. I mean, not that the lead characters weren't my favorites, but this was played by Chris Renault. So the thing I love about Chris is Molly's last play, he was her, her co-leading man. They were in two or three scenes together. And so I look at him in those videos now as a, as a sixth grader. 
And if he's a high school senior, he probably doesn't even remember sixth grade. I don't, I don't know that I remembered much about sixth grade when I was a senior, but I remember it succinctly because that was Molly's last play. So it could be yesterday for me and it could be a hundred years ago for him. And he had this amazing character off to the side for a long time. And then he was a banker. And then, you know, he played guitar and sang this funny song. And then he played the cello and his whole character was this banker stuck inside of the bank personality and you have to act a certain way. And really he was struggling with coming out about being gay and, and he was a musician and finding his love of music. And I know that if you haven't seen this play, I probably am rambling on and on. It would be worth Googling the play once. It's right here. I'm showing the picture again once. And just reading the backstory, which I don't even know. All I know is I sat dumbfounded and really unable to move most of the time. And I'm going to cry again because like any amazing piece of art, anyone can look at it if it's done well and written well and find their own story in it. There was not one dead child in that story, but there was profound loss and struggle and love. And I could relate pretty much every scene in that play to what I've gone through with Molly, to what I lost with Kenny before Molly's death, to losing what I've lost and losing Roy and all I lost in that relationship. I look at Gracie and the life that I wanted for her, this perfect life that would just be happy and wonderful. And then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. It was unbelievable. So I really think I was supposed to share about this play. And I don't know if it's because it's the connection with Molly B Foundation and in Concord High School Theater, if it's RB and Clint Close, if it's Karen Braz, who I've known since I was 13, what is it? Maybe it doesn't even matter what it is. What I really appreciated at the play was at intermission, Chris's mother came down and said, you probably don't want to go walk around. How about I bring you some water? And she sat and talked with me and, and made sure I was okay, which I truly appreciated. So what does this have to do with me? Well, quite frankly, it has everything to do with me. We look at life in certain ways. When I think of Bessel van der Kolk and The Body Keeps the Score, and try to use that book to look at and make sense of my life and my life's decisions and look at what I've learned from the theater process, both as an espion myself and my theater experience and what it's done for Gracie and what it did for Molly in the two years that she dove into it. And what I see now that it does for people like Clint Close and Karen Braz who direct it and create it and cultivate it and allow it to happen. And then what, what it does for a community. Concord is a very, very art-centric community, very, very much. And the elementary schools aren't the only theater opportunities for kids. There's RB Productions, there's Children's Theater Project. There is the community players. The whole city comes around and supports these endeavors. We have, you know, two, three theaters now. We have Bank of New Hampshire Stage. We have the Capital Center for the Arts. We have the City Auditorium. What we're looking for now is a major school auditorium that's related to the school district. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> this is me, not a school board member. This is me, Barb, in a thousand tiny steps pushing for a beautiful auditorium in our soon-to-be potentially new middle school. I look at middle school theater as a way for middle school-age students to jump up on stage and play something so completely unrealistic to their reality that they can learn how to step out of themselves and into being a Horton who hears a who or being Charlie Brown or at age 12 being Millie, you know, a tap-dancing wonder, you know, looking to make her big break in New York City. You know, when you're 12, you can't even imagine New York City in the 1930s, you know, but there you go. And then you get to high school and suddenly the stories become a bit more real. And you're old enough now to see outside of yourself a bit and to look at your parents and your grandparents and to look at American history, if it's still allowed to be taught and look at all of the things that give perspective and make current life make sense. And then you have a play like Once, where those high school students 
there were some uncomfortable topics there. These are high school students acting out unbelievably adult, painful things. What an unbelievable metaphor for life. What an unbelievable chance for us to use the arts to make ourselves better. Knowing some of the actors and actresses on stage, knowing their stories, knowing their backstories and their personal lives, heart, heart wrenchingly beautiful that they could get up and step into these other characters and allow their own pain to come out through the pain of the characters. Final bit on the theater piece, and then back to the main gist of my, of the podcast here. There were two students from another town in New Hampshire and they came and watched and they sat right in front of me. It's like the theater's half empty and I'm in the second row and they come into the theater and they sit in the very front row right in front of me. So that one gentleman turned around and said, am I blocking you? And I'm like, well, no, but yes, a little bit. I have to lean over now to see part of the stage, but you know, I'm not gonna, it doesn't matter. At intermission, I asked about them because there I am crying and they're looking at me funny. And so they explained that they were from another town and that they met the Concord High kids at the state drama festival and that they loved them, that it was the most amazing. They just met these amazing people and they had to come up and watch because they wanted to see these actors and actresses that they had met perform. And they were blown away. What else was amazing to them was how theater in Concord was so different than their town. And they said, in our town, you know, the theater people are kind of their own little I said, well, you know what? Sometimes it's that way in Concord, but I'll tell you right now, we have some unbelievably well-rounded people that are very, very popular, very successful in theater, very successful in athletics, very popular in student government. It's not just the theater people over here and the student government people here and the athletes here. Those divisions do exist, but theater is a huge piece of the fabric of Concord. And I talked about all our youth things that we offer. And they said, well, do you have a student here? And I said, no, <laughs> no, but my daughter died and we have a foundation that we support theater. And they were like, there you go. That's what their town didn't have, that community involvement from a young age. So that made me feel good. And it made me very, very, very recharged in the purpose of the Molly B Foundation, which is coming along. So here I am now as Jack's mother. And one of the biggest things I get asked sometimes is, am I trying to recreate a second go round with kids because I lost Molly and Molly and Gracie's life didn't come out the way that I wanted it to? And I get it. That's actually a pretty logical question to ask. Oh, I lost a baby, so I'll have another one to fill the void. Well, it's, this is a void that nothing can fill. And this is what people don't understand. Getting a dog doesn't make losing your spouse at age 80 any easier. It just makes suffering easier because you have a dog to suffer with. So it, does Jack's birth make my suffering easier? Quite honestly, yes. He's an intense distraction. <laughs> He's adorable, but takes up a lot of energy. So people have these expectations of me or these, or these assumptions that they make around what it is to be Jack's mother now. And quite honestly, it's entirely different than being Gracie's and Molly's mom in a million ways. It's also very similar in a million ways. A baby is a baby, a mother is a mother. There are certain things I'm doing exactly the same. And there are certain things that Jack will do that Molly and Gracie did. I will love to see him in dance and theater, not because he needs to copy Gracie and Molly, but because the dance and theater communities are amazing people. One thing that Jack will also do that Gracie and Molly didn't do so much of is I think I'll put him in some more athletic type things. I just didn't with Gracie and Molly because they didn't seem overtly athletic and they were dancing all the time, which is athletic in and of itself. And that took up a lot of their time. I think I will try to balance those things a bit more for Jack. My biggest thing is you find your passion. What is it that you love? I was talking about running with somebody the other day. Oh, yesterday at the race. I think Molly would have ended up being a really talented runner. She was so, so not athletic in the beginning of her life. And as she got older and, and thinned out and got taller, her running form suddenly went from awkward and clumsy to beautiful. And I remember her last summer of track camp thinking, huh, you might actually be a runner someday, Molly. Like, wow. And I remember a haunting piece of that is she would tell me that when she ran and her, that her head would hurt, she'd get this massive headache. And was that normal? 
well, now I know it's because she had that brain tumor. So it guts me because I thought maybe she was dehydrated or I don't know. That's a hard, that's a hard memory for me. So I had this list of things that when I did my podcast yesterday, I went through and I will, I'll go through them again because it helps to keep the podcast sort of operating. So what I want versus others' expectations. So what I want is peace of mind, I guess, and a big breath of relief. I also want things to be finished. And this was another major theme of this play. One of the major, major pushes of the main character, the woman who has a daughter whose husband is now missing. He's back in Czechoslovakia. They're not speaking. She's living on her own with her mother. Now a single mother to this daughter. And then you have the main lead character of the boy, the man who his girlfriend, who he loves and wrote all these love songs about is in New York. Now, because of the intensity of music, these two people fall in love. The main characters fall in love with one another. She's still married. He has the girlfriend he's pining over. They fall in love through her ability to get him to be musical again. Her big thing is, as the play goes along and they have to face their choices, do they choose one another and be together? Or does she go back to Czechoslovakia and he goes to America to see his girlfriend? That's all I'll say because I don't want to really, really ruin the whole play. I have so many unfinished things. And one of my big pushes in the months and years since Molly died was trying to have closure with Roy because everything ended so traumatically. And I am blocked from his life. <laughs> well, he's blocked from my life. I have a public everything. There's nothing about me that he can't find. I have no way of knowing how he's doing. And, and that's my current reality. And in terms of my day-to-day -day life here, maybe that's a better reality. Except I think about it all the time because it's unfinished and it's not settled. And, and there's so much hurt and loss on both of our parts, mine far more than him in terms of professional loss and monetary loss and all that kind of stuff in regards to our relationship and friendship. But when I was watching the play and the whole unfinished business, Roy came to mind for me. Molly's death comes to mind for me because I wouldn't still be trying to find what was the first step that caused it if it was finished for me. If I could truly forgive myself for all the decisions I made that I feel contributed to her death. I'm taking the steps. I'm doing the best I can. And in typical fashion, I'm doing it in a very, very public way. That's just me. Gracie's life doesn't bear finishing because she's alive and growing and I don't need to finish anything with her. We talk all the time, actually. And if we have unfinished business, then it will morph itself as she gets older. Kenny and I have many, many things that we need to follow through on and complete and finish. In our fight the other day, when things escalate and we get angry, we start bringing up stuff from, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, long before we knew Molly was sick, long before she died. That was such a huge message of display for me, this, her, this woman's push to finish business. We have to finish the business. So what I want versus others' expectations around having Jack, I want the ability to know as I raise Jack that what's in my past can come to some sort of completion and closure. And I may have to facilitate things all by myself in these ways. I don't know. I know the podcast helps me do that. I know having Jack helps me do that in terms of my reproductive reality as a human being. You know, there are just so many things that come to mind for me. And others' expectations, I am learning to let go of others' expectations. I know that a big piece in my relationship with Roy was I just loved when he was proud of me or impressed with something I did. And it gave me such a rush of adrenaline and like, oh my God, I made decisions sometimes based on that, which in hindsight weren't the right decisions at all. My life is nothing like what I imagined for this phase of my life, this phase of my life being in my 50s. You're darn well right. It's not like what I imagined. If I could go back to the white picket fence era of my life when Molly and Gracie were young and I was still working in the district, what I hoped is that my life wouldn't be boring. I was afraid that what I was doing was boring. And boy, let me tell you what I would give to have boring back. But I did think at this time in my life, Molly and Gracie would be grown up and off doing their thing. And then 
Kenny and I would, you know, at this point when I was really contemplating these times, we were still doing okay and we would figure it out and retire. And, you know, I had all these ideas. I didn't know I would have coached. I would have had my 30 years of coaching and all these different things. No, my life at age 58, almost 59 is nothing like I thought it would be. And Jack is just a piece of that. I thought I'd have more. My life is nothing like I imagined. And in terms of now that Jack is here, instead of fitting us in the boxes of what we think we're supposed to do, I don't have to create some white picket family for Jack. It didn't work for Gracie and Molly. Why would it work now? And why do we have to have the white picket fence version of Americana to be considered a healthy, happy family? Happy husband, happy wife, three children. I just think that there are so many paths to happiness and so many ways to define family now. And that the picket fence can be shrubbery. The picket fence can be a wrought iron fence. There can be no fence. You understand this is an, an analogy here. In my journey with Jack, what I hope to show him is that regardless of my reality with Kenny, regardless of Kenny and I as a mother and a father or a couple or friends or whatever, is however we live our lives and whatever path we choose, that we do it in a way that what we're showing Jack is positive and not negative. When I look at my list here, why I had Jack in the first place. So this is where all the assumptions come in and all people's ideas about what I'm thinking in my head when they don't know. So I had Jack because I had a dream that told me to have Jack. And that is the most simple answer I can say. Had I not had the dream, I wouldn't have tried to have a baby and Jack wouldn't be here. The 9 million steps that went into this process took years from the first dream to Jack's birth were, was just under five years. That wasn't a quick decision. That wasn't a, oh my God, I lost a kid. I need a new one at all. It spanned two really dark years in my life. It spanned a year that had brain surgery and kidney transplants. I mean, a lot went on in the life of Barbara Higgins <laughs> and Kenny and Gracie and Roy and everyone else. Well, this decision was in process that, you know, it came to be. Why I had Jack in the first place, I think I will come to know that as I live my life. I think there is a much bigger spiritual piece to Jack's existence here than people realize. We all get caught up on the physicality of it. My physical body being able to grow a baby and then give birth to the baby. People's fascination with the genetics of the baby. How do we do it? My egg and Kenny's sperm, donor, donor, my egg, donor, sperm, Kenny's sperm, donor, egg. What is it? You know, did we adopt an embryo? None of that matters. And nobody will know these things. When Jack is old enough to understand all this, then, then we'll explain all that went into this process for him. But right now, that's not the important piece. There are hundreds of thousands of embryos frozen in freezers everywhere that are waiting to be put into somebody's belly and become a human. The conception, the creation of the embryo is the important thing or that, well, any embryo is important, but the fact that it could be put in me and grown is what I focus on. I was the vehicle to get him here. And my biggest thing when I look at him isn't that, oh my God, I had a baby. It's, oh my God, there's human life here and he's going to grow up and do things, big things, little things. He's here. <laughs> Why is he here? And that's my next question. What is Jack's purpose? I have no idea, but watching him, watching him interact with the people that he knows, me, Kenny, my mother, Kaylee, Gracie, his sister, you know, I don't know his interaction with Kenny's kids because he's, I haven't been there when he's been with Davey or Kenny. I imagine he's his, his gorgeous self at the CrossFit gym when he's with Emmy and B. I haven't brought him to the CrossFit gym and conquered too much, but I'll, I, I can't imagine he would be any different. He just, just loves people. When I'm in a coffee shop, he engages with everyone in that shop. He connects. We went out for dinner on Molly's death day. We went to Cheers for lunch. And he, I would tell you, he just, he became friends with everybody in that restaurant. It was adorable. So what is his purpose? I think his purpose goes back to Molly's purpose. Do you think you have a purpose? If so, what? I think mine is to make people happy. Does that make you happy? Yes. Purpose fulfilled. 
you know, maybe, maybe his purpose is just to be a little ray of happiness in an otherwise miserable world. The next one on my list here is how he helped save me. So Jack has saved me in a hundred thousand ways. I, you know, I can't put bad things into my body because I'm nursing him. I need him to be healthy. I also can't put bad things into my body when I'm done nursing him because I'm his mother. So although I hid behind the mask of alcohol and a lot of drugs and medications in the two years after Molly's death, that reality can never return. And that's a huge relief to me. Looking at the number of people who travel down the drug addiction path, I am incredibly lucky. I'm lucky that my body and mind, as much as I could be an addictive personality, if I was going to be a drug addict for the rest of my life, I would be there now. And I would probably be dead of some sort of tragedy. I straddle the fence of sobriety and I hold on tight to the knowledge that I have to be vigilant all the time about what I put into my mouth. He brings me incredible happiness. He takes up time that I would otherwise spend either wasting or thinking negative things. You can't be miserable with a baby, they know. And so he, he helps me a lot and he saves me a lot. I think in some ways he has saved me from decisions that I might make around jobs I might take or decisions I might make around Kenny or Roy. I have wonderful family members that I connect much better with now because of this baby. And I make decisions a bit more slowly now that I have Jack in the mix. My job as a mom, my job as a mom is the same as everyone's job as a mom. And look at me, I'm wearing my mom strong. Let me just tilt my camera. I'm wearing my mom strong t-shirt, which comes from CrossFit Amesbury. What is my job as a mom? To nourish him, to keep him safe, to love him, to show him happiness, to protect him from danger, to teach him the ways of the world as I see it. Meaning, give him skills to find out how he sees the world. I do remember Roy is a, is a hardcore atheist and he, he was very, very sensitive about the fact that kids would get, in his mind, taught that religion was real because their parents believed it and they were forced to believe it. And there are, there are children that grew up in families that basically say, the only way you're going to get into heaven is to follow this religion. And if you don't, you're going to hell because that's what those parents believe. I would echo Roy's belief that children oftentimes join relig religions because it's the only thing they were shown. But his commitment to atheism championed the most far-right born-again Christians commitment to their religion or not even born-again Christian, the most, the most rigid religious person and Roy's commitment to atheism were the same. It's right because I know it's right. I read a book that told me it's right. I know the book is right. I don't think it's right. I know it's right. And I have a, a friend who's very, 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 very devoted to her religion. And she'll say, well, I read this book. And I will say, but that's just a book somebody wrote. Yes, but the person that wrote it knows the truth. Well, they think they know the truth. There's no difference. Anyone, anyone saying I'm right and you should believe what I say, in my mind is the same. What I want for Jack and what I created for Gracie and for Molly, and I'm getting to see Gracie live it, is the ability to ask the questions. You don't feel right in your religion? Look at all religions. Look at the people that started the religions. Look at the prophets of God as they're shown. And if you end up not believing that they're prophets of God, then you've done that because you've researched it. Look into atheism. You don't believe in atheism? The great thing about atheism is that there are several, there are atheists that just don't believe in God. They believe in something in the universe, but not some big God person that tells you what's right and wrong. There are atheists that believe that there must be something out there, but they don't believe in religion. It's the religion piece, what humanity has done to the word of the universe or the word of God. So there's a lot of gray area there as well. It's not as black and white as one might think. So when I think about my job as a mom with Jack, I believe in God. I don't think God is the punitive God that a lot of the, the things that religious writings say. I think that, you know, to keep a child away from a radiator, you scream, no. You know, if they run into the street, you grab them and yell at them because at that moment, you need them to know this is the most important thing in the world. 
don't touch the radiator. And you slap their hand. Okay, because the radiator could kill you. So sometimes I think a lot of the mean, the stern words of God are written that way because what they're about could kill us or could get in the way of us growing into the, into the beautiful spiritual selves we can be. I don't think spirituality necessarily connects to religion or God. I think it connects to that little 2% of science that can't be explained by the numbers. And I think we all have it. So what is my job as Jack's mom? To help him cultivate the ability to ask questions so he can find the truth, the truth as he sees it and believes it. Okay, I got off there, but, but I think it's important sometimes for you all to understand what I see as true. Kenny's sister is very committed to her church and she really wants so much for us to be a certain way and believes very, very wholeheartedly that we will not get into heaven. And so my response to her is, well, then pray for me. If that's what you believe, then pray for me. Then you're doing your job as a proponent of your religion and you're praying for the sinners, right? Because in her mind, that's what I am. I just don't see it that way. What I see is there are many, many paths to the truth. There are many paths to fruition. Being a good person in my mind is what gets you on the right one to begin with. All right, so that's helping him find his purpose. Where would I be if I didn't have Jack? Uh, that's too hard to answer in one sentence. If I didn't have Jack, you know, to tell you the truth, the process of having him, if it hadn't worked, if the IVF had failed or I had miscarried the pregnancy and there was no child, I still would have gone through that process. I think I would still be on, on the path that I'm on in terms of self-preservation and growth and really trying to find what's right for me. I have to be honest and say, I don't know. I don't know if I would just be sitting in this house doing it all from here. I think I might've gotten on a plane and traveled. I think I might've gotten out of here a little bit. If Gracie had gone to Disney, maybe I'd be down there. Maybe Kenny and I would be down there. I know that the freedom you have when you don't have babies in the house might change the day-to-day -day reality of what I'm doing, but I don't think it would be, I think I'd still be in this mind space. I think I'd still be trying really hard to get better and to not have my life defined by choices that hurt me still and relationships left unfinished and, you know, dead, dead children. I don't think so. I have this conversation a lot. Get back to normal. There is no such thing as getting back to normal because the normal you had the normal that existed before you got to wherever you are that you have to get back from can't exist anymore because all the things that happened after that normal change it. So COVID is a big one right now. Well, we need to get back to pre-COVID normal. We can never get back to pre-COVID normal because pre-COVID normal didn't even have COVID in it. There was no such thing as COVID. So as a school board member struggling so hard to find the balance between looking at the health and well-being of teachers and the health and well-being of students and the health and well-being of families, and all of us have to redefine what normal looks like. It won't work anymore. What worked pre-COVID in any first grade classroom won't work anymore. What worked pre-COVID in any 12th grade classroom won't work anymore. Because pre-COVID doesn't exist. It's a reality that can no longer happen. Because in those days, we had never heard of COVID. We had never gone through a pandemic. The end. So normal is different now. I remember being so offended when Molly first died. Well, you're gonna have a new normal. Oh, shut up. What do you know about new normal? That's what I said inside my head. I didn't want a new normal. I wanted Molly to magically come back from the dead and I wanted my life back. As messy and ugly as it was, I wanted her back. And that was never going to happen. So the people saying those things were actually right. I was going to have to get used to a very new idea of normal. My normal life is as crazy and different and unnormal as it could be compared to societal norms in the average American person or the average anybody. I am not the average person. I'm not the typical 58-year-old. I'm not the typical mother. 
I'm not the typical woman. I'm not the typical teacher. I'm not the typical anything because I have a life that has had such drastic things in it. In terms of Jack bringing me back to normal, I'm a 58-year-old mother who nurses a baby. There's nothing normal about that. So our normal doesn't meet any standard of normal. The play this weekend, the, the play once, really looked at that as well. Looking at the characters, not a, one of the characters in this play would qualify as normal. They were all a bit on the outskirts of normal. Every personality type was represented. Every struggle that you could think of had a piece in this play. And this group of people coming together to help one another all represented a piece of us that we worry about that doesn't fit in, that we hide, or we try to maneuver or manipulate or mask so that we look better in public. So get back to normal. I will never get back to anything because there's nothing for me to get back to. The life that still makes me catch my breath and wonder, did it really happen? I don't want to think about it sometimes because I want it back so bad. When Molly and Gracie were like in elementary school and yes, I had this relationship with Roy and yes, that part of it was not okay and I'd lost my job, but, but the gist of my life as a mother was fine. And the most important thing is always Gracie and Molly and oh, to go back to those days and have all that back. It guts me. It will never not gut me, I don't think. I just think right now, that's what I would go back to if I could go back. But guess what? I can't. So I have Jack now. Am I trying to recreate a new, yay, he's in fifth grade and he sings and dances and plays baseball and ice hockey and my life is perfect? No, no. I will get to that point and I will have him in those things or he will have chosen things that he loves and I will have those people as my friends and colleagues and volunteer parent groups And I will probably have huge amounts of anxiety around the flashbacks I get and what my life is like. That's probably what will happen. So I have some other things listed here, coaching at two gyms, starting an online business, solidifying the Molly B Foundation, writing. When Molly and Gracie were growing up, when I taught in the district, I taught and I coached and I did some writing with my brother. So I had a very, very busy life, but very structured and predictable. It wasn't frenetic like it is now. And when I, when I start to get upset, my go-to is to stay so busy that I can't think. And this goes back to me, I think, to fifth grade when my life at home, you know, and in my childhood was as bad as it could be. And I had choir and Girl Scouts and violin and piano and every night swim team. I was busy all the time. It kept me out of my house and it kept me out of my head. And so I look at my first year of life as Jack's mother. He's five weeks old and we go to Florida and I come back and I begin a podcast and an online thing. And, and then I increase my hours at VLAX. And what do I do with a newborn? I get busier than I've ever been. This is permission to sit and do nothing except nurse a baby and schmuggle. And I've done plenty of that, but I've, I'm also as busy as ever. And so I look at, okay, Barbara, let's find the balance here. Maybe what I need to do is join a theater club and perform on the stage <laughs> and then get on the frenetic. But Along with Jack's life is Molly's death and my growth as a human and the legacy. And the only way that on some level I can make sense of Molly's death is to use it to give other children what she had and what she wanted with life on the stage. That's what the Molly B Foundation is for me. An online business, I have a book that I wrote about her and I want the book to sell. So I want people to know who I am. So I need an online presence. Would I love to be famous? Quite frankly, yes. And maybe that's an ego statement. But I would love to have a voice like Glennon Doyle, who's just a regular person who shared her life and became who she is. She's somebody I would love to meet. I would love to meet Brene Brown. I would love to meet Marianne Williamson. These are people that took their actual normal struggles and utilized them to help countless others. And so I'm driven there. It's not like, oh, look at me, Barb Higgins, my podcast. I'm imitating Kenny there in the middle of our fight. It was actually kind of funny. But no, it's really bigger than that. I want to use what I've gone through to help others who are going through the same thing that can't get up on stage or in a podcast and share their their stories. 
my writing. I love writing and it's something that I should get back into. And, you know, I hired Virginia to write my memoir because it's too, too close, but I have a couple of, of other books that I want to write that I know need to be written by my hand. And so this helps me, this process helps. Me. So here I am ending episode 38, very different than I thought. You know, I want to wrap up by always, always shouting out the people in my life that helped me. Karen Braz and Peg, which is the performance ensemble group at Runlet Middle School. Clint Close and Cast, which is the performing arts group at Concord High School. RB Productions, which is our local children's theater company. The Community Players and Children's Theater Project, which is our community theater company. And then the people behind the scenes. So Cindy Flanagan and Concord Dance Academy and all the dance instructors, quite honestly. And I want to just reach out to the people behind the scenes that make these things happen. I think of Steve Martin at the Capital Center for the Arts and the Bank of New Hampshire stage. I think of Alwyn Fine, my good friend Anna's mother, who is such a huge piece of the city auditorium. These people dedicate their lives to theater and, and performing arts and making sure it's available and accessible to everyone in our community. So shout outs to those people. Big shout out to Kenny right now. This was a last minute recording, so he could be sitting in the car in the driveway right now. I don't know, but I'm finishing and wrapping up. I want to thank you all for listening. Please keep listening. As always, do something good for yourself. Give yourself the oxygen before you give it to somebody else. You know, I could have recorded my podcast this morning instead of going to the gym. If I don't go work out, I am not a good self. So I took care of myself. No, I need to work out. And now I'll record the podcast. So as always, I will end by saying, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.